You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church family. Uh, My name is Kristen Bartley, and my husband, Randy, and I serve here um, on an on-campus GC for our parents of middle schoolers and high schoolers, and um, we also serve in men's and women's women's Bible class, as well as the exciting new foster and adoption ministry. So I'm happy to be here to read scripture with you this morning. So if you will, turn with me to Luke 2, 25 to 35, and we'll read together. If you do not have a Bible with you, there is one in the seat in front of you, underneath the seat in front of you. Luke 2, 25 to 35. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kristen. Good morning, everybody. How is our Thanksgiving? Who has the tree up already? Show of hands. Okay, pretty decent. We have two trees in my house. They're halfway done at this point. But props to Robert Lusk for putting up about 12 this week. Let's give him a little round of applause, right? Anyway, my name is Jeff McCorder. I'm one of the lay elders here. It's my joy to be here with you guys this morning to open the word of God, see what he may have for us today. I do want to begin with something we have come to call in our house the Logan Liturgy. If you've ever been here when Logan Thompson, our student minister, has preached, uh, he begins this, this, with this simple practice um, that serves to simply center our hearts and minds on the Lord and prepare us to receive whatever he may have for us in his word. So if you would like to, if you're willing, place your hands like this. You may close your eyes. Take a deep breath in. Let it out. And pray for the person on your left. For the person on your right. Pray for me if you would. And pray for your own heart. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly this morning, acknowledging that what we have in this book is your holy word revealed to us. I pray that you would help us to, through it, see you and your son Jesus more clearly, that you might make us more like him. In his name we pray, amen. In the 1960s, Sam Cooke was a huge name in popular music. He had sold hundreds of thousands of records, crooning sweet and soulful pop songs like You Send Me, Only Sixteen, Cupid, and Twisting the Night Away. But in October of 1963, an event would occur which would change him and motivate him to write a song of a very different tone, one that would become one of the world's best-known protest songs. On October 8th of that year, Cook, his wife, and his entourage were on their way to Shreveport, Louisiana, where they had a tour stop, and they had called ahead to make reservations at a Holiday Inn. When they arrived, they found a desk clerk who nervously explained to them that there were actually no reservations available, at least not for them. After some loud protest, Cook's wife convinced him to leave the hotel which they did, humiliated and enraged. And they went three miles away to the Castle Motel on Sprague Street where they found a group of police officers who would arrest them for disturbing the peace. Two months later, after hearing Bob Dylan's blowing in the wind and wondering why this white boy from Minnesota was writing the protests while he was writing the commercially successful pop songs, Cook sat down and penned these simple but powerful words. It's been a long time coming but a change is gonna come. It was a song that was born out of 250 years of injustice, slavery, torture, lynchings, and Jim Crow discrimination. And it found its residence in every heart of every person who had endured all these things plus a thousand more unseen daily injustices and humiliations. And it became an anthem, an anthem of every heart longing for deliverance, for freedom, for justice, for a new day. A change is gonna come. The cry of a people for deliverance born out of long years of suffering is a constant theme throughout the ages of human history and indeed in the pages of the Bible. It is what has given birth to revolution, the rising and fall of dynasties. And if we are to rightly see Jesus this morning through the eyes of an old man in the temple, we first must immerse ourselves in the weary world of pain and struggle in which he lived. And now it is fortuitous that we are starting this Advent series right on the heels of a two-year journey through the book of Genesis. Remember, this book that we hold is a grand narrative, a long story from eternity past to eternity future, written by the hand of God in which we are now living. And if we are going to understand Simeon, we have to go back to the beginning. The story of Simeon begins in the garden when God created heaven and earth and everything in it, and he lived in perfect harmony with humanity. But of course, it wasn't long before Adam and Eve exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, elevated themselves above God and chose their own will and way rather than his, breaking the perfect relationship they had with the only one who had loved them perfectly. The Bible says that the whole earth was subjected to futility as sin, death, darkness, and brokenness began to infect all creation, which Romans says now groans with the pain of childbirth, longing for redemption. However, immediately after the fall, as we just saw in Genesis, God makes this promise, the promise to Adam and Eve to rescue his children and to bring them up out of the pit, to bless them forever as his children once more. He promises that this deliverance would come, would come through the seed of woman, one born of woman. 
And all throughout the book of Genesis and indeed the rest of the Old Testament, we see this picture of the promised deliverer coming into greater and greater focus, even as the dreadful sin of humanity continues to spread. We see the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and others. We learn that the the deliverer will come through the family of Abraham, the people of Israel, the tribe of Judah, and the house of King David. As we saw in Genesis 49, the scepter shall never depart from him and his kingdom will be established forever. And this coming king, of course, is foretold in the pages of the Old Testament through the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others. And all, the, and all the while, the people of Israel are constantly turning away from God their father, running to foreign gods, as Judges 2 says, playing the harlot in a near constant state of infidelity. Yet God, in his patience, long-suffering, steadfast love, remains faithful to his promise, preserves his people, and continues to draw them back. In the book of Genesis, we see him give the law through Moses to the people, the old covenant, presenting the standard of righteousness to which his people would be held, but which none of them would be able to meet. And he instituted a sacrificial system by which the blood of animals would make atonement for the people's failure to uphold this law. The constant sacrifices performed daily in the temple would serve as a reminder and a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that would one day come to bring about a new covenant, the Lamb of God, who would cleanse his people from their sins once and for all, from the inside out. And throughout the ages, God would send prophets and and preachers to point his people back to himself and to point them forward to the coming Messiah, the hope of Israel, through whom his people would be redeemed. And that really is the purpose of the Old Testament, to demonstrate our inability to save ourselves through the works of the law while pointing forward to the one who would fulfill the law for us on our behalf and save us when we couldn't save ourselves. And brothers and sisters, this is the story that every young Jewish boy and Jewish girl would grow up hearing passed down from grandfathers to fathers to sons. It was the story of their family. And from a young age, it would have been implanted in the heart of every young Jewish boy or girl, a sense of forward-looking, waiting, watching, hoping, longing for deliverance. But before we jump into our specific story for today, I want to talk about one more period of Jewish history that a lot of us church-going folks are probably a lot less familiar with. I was recently at my children's school, West Dallas Community School, for our parent-teacher conferences, and as I was sitting there in my little chair looking up on the, uh, the classroom wall, they have a timeline of the history of the world. And because it's a Christian school, a lot of the events on the timeline are events in biblical history. And I was noticing that really from uh, about 400 BC to the birth of Christ, there's nothing. It wasn't that surprising to me growing up in church. We always heard this period of time referred to as the 400 years of silence. It's a time that's called the intertestamental period. And what was meant by that was really it was 400 years in which there was no new prophecy, no new canonical revelation about the coming Messiah. But I think myself and a lot of us sort of just sort of assumed, okay, well, nothing really happened in that time. The Jews sort of sat around and worked their fields and made pottery and grew grapes and waited for Christmas. But that's not really how it went. Uh, so at the risk of getting way too far off the rails, I do want to take a look at this time because it is quite literally the time in which Simeon lived. So if you will take out your notebooks and you sharpen your number two pencils, we're going to do a rapid fire history lesson through 400 years. 
All right, near the end of the Old Testament, the Babylonians come and they conquer Jerusalem and they carry the Israelites off to the north into exile. About 45 years after that, we see the, the Babylonians themselves fall to the Persians. And the Persian king Cyrus allows the people of Israel led by Ezra and Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city wall under Nehemiah and the temple under Ezra. One thing a lot of people don't think about is that not everybody actually returned to Jerusalem. Many people remained scattered about in what's called the diaspora. But those who did return settled back in the area that we now call Palestine, Judea, the Holy Land. These people lived, married, had children, and reestablished a Jewish community in the land that God had promised to them. And presumably among the descendants of those returners would have been a young couple named Mary and Joseph and an old man named Simeon. But anyway, roughly 200 years after that group of returners went back to Jerusalem, here comes a 20-year-old Greek named Alexander. Maybe you've heard of him. He rose to power and spent about the next 10 years conquering the entire known world, including the Persians, who at that time still controlled Judea. We know him, of course, as Alexander the Great. His conquests spread Greek culture and Greek language across the known world, which more or less homogenized the culture of the world in a process known as Hellenization. This process certainly touched the Jewish people and its effects are evident throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's the main reason why the New Testament is written in Koine Greek rather than Hebrew. And the legend goes, though, that right before Alexander the Great died, when he was asked who will succeed him, he said, whoever is the strongest. This led to a power struggle amongst his military leaders with two ultimately rising to the top, a man named Ptolemy and another named Seleucus. And the small strip of Jewish land was basically caught in a tug of war between these two empires. The Ptolemaic Empire to the south, Seleucids to the north. And after about 100 years, the Seleucids assumed control of the land and the Jewish people. Now, life under the Seleucid dynasty was not good for the Jewish people. Their culture and way of life was constantly under threat, and things really came to a head about 170 years before Jesus was born under a certain Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV. Now, this guy did some terrible things to the Jews. He tore down the walls of Jerusalem once more. He robbed the temple of its most sacred and valuable items, and most egregiously, he sacrificed a pig, an animal that would, would have been most unclean in Jewish eyes there in the temple itself. Now this was the last straw and a group of zealous young Jews were sick and tired of being kicked around, humiliated and oppressed by Antiochus Epiphanes and they decided it was time to do something. They were called the Hasmoneans or the Maccabees. They were led, led by a young revolutionary named Judas Maccabeus. He was in fact welcomed into Jerusalem with palm branches and shouts of Hosanna which may sound familiar. He fought back against the Seleucids and dramatically cleansed the temple in an incident that was still celebrated today in what you may know as Hanukkah. Now, Judas Maccabeus was neither the first nor the last revolutionary leader who would rise during this time promising deliverance of Israel from their oppressors, but he, along with all the others, would ultimately fail to bring about the long-hoped-for restoration. We're getting close. All right, about 60 years before Jesus was born, the formidable Roman Empire would rise to power. And there's a new emperor named Pompey who came in and wrestled control out of the hands of the Seleucids and now ruled Palestine. But if the Jews thought life was bad under the Seleucids, it was even worse under the Romans. 
The Romans' remarkable efficiency in road building and government was matched only by their iron-fisted brutality, and any hint of revolution was immediately crushed, usually culminating with their grotesquely innovative new form of execution, the cross. So, the intertestamental period, this 400 years, was not a joyful time in the life of the people of Israel. It was a time of great suffering and great longing. Their tiny strip of land and indeed their entire society was basically a pawn on the chessboard of geopolitical turmoil, being yanked back and forth between global empires, used, abused, and oppressed to the point that for many Jews, hope for deliverance was likely slipping away altogether and the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises of land, seed, and blessing, seemed more like ancient fairy tales with every passing year. And it was in this world that a little Jewish boy, probably right around the time that the Romans came to power, uh, BC 60 to 70, would have been born. A little boy named Simeon, who would have run and played and sat in the fire in the Palestinian dust and listened to the stories of his forefathers, holding on to hope that maybe, just maybe, the promises made to those old patriarchs still held true, holding on to hope that maybe a change was gonna come. So if you open with me to Luke 2, verse 22, let's read. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So what's the first thing we see here? Mary and Joseph coming into the temple carrying their baby son. And we see immediately that Mary and Joseph were devout law-abiding Jews Having already circumcised their baby boy on the eighth day in accordance with the law, they're now headed into the temple to carry out these ceremonial rituals of cleansing that were prescribed in the law in Leviticus 12 and 15. It is also noteworthy that what they bring as a sacrifice is two turtle doves rather than the customary uh, sacrificial lamb because it it was a provision made in the Old Testament that those who couldn't afford the lamb could bring two turtle doves instead. So it shows us that Mary and Joseph were indeed not among the wealthy. And we're not gonna spend too much time here, but I do want you to see this, that these rites and rituals of purification and atonement, which served as constant reminders for the Jewish people of their spiritual uncleanliness. And they served 
<laughs> and the, the purification and atonement that would ultimately come through the Messiah. And what an incredible thing that Mary and Joseph in their obedience were carrying out these rituals of atonement according to the law while literally holding in their arms the one who would eventually fulfill the law on their behalf and make atonement and wash them, cleanse them from the inside out, not just their bodies, but their souls. So they're walking into the temple and here he comes, old Simeon. And if you're a new parent or have ever been a new parent, you know this feeling. You are pushing your stroller through Costco or down the street and all of a sudden here comes somebody, oftentimes an elderly person, and you can tell that they are coming up to you not to talk to you, but to see whatever lies in the bassinet. And at first you're like really excited. You're a new parent. You love that everybody is smitten and enamored with your little baby. But there's also a little hint of apprehension of how is this going to go? Is it going to be weird? Are they going to say something awkward? Are they going to criticize the way I have my baby dressed? Are going to give me some sort of piece of unsolicited parenting advice? And so you just brace yourself. Now, of course, at this moment for Mary, very little about her pregnancy, her childbirth, or the first weeks of her baby's life has been normal. The birth of her child was, of course, announced by an angel. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born in a strange town, in a stable, laid in a manger, and he's already been visited by a bunch of smelly shepherds that they didn't know. So at this point, she's probably like, it can't get any stranger than this. Well, of course, despite what the song would have you think, Mary did know that her baby is special. She's been told already that he's to be called the son of the most high and that his kingdom will reign forever. She knows that she's holding the Messiah in her arms. And after the shepherds left, it says in Luke 2:19 that she treasured up all these things in her heart, pondering them. So she's done a lot of thinking lately and is just humbled before the Lord, ready for whatever might be next for her. But you have to think that when she sees this old man coming towards her through the temple, she's like, okay, here we go again. And sure enough, he goes straight for the baby. And we know very little about Simeon at this point, and we don't want to conjecture too much, but it does seem safe to assume because of what he later says about being now able to die in peace that he was probably an old man. Other than that, he has no title. He's not called a priest or a prophet, as Anna will later be called a prophetess later in the chapter. As far as we know, he's just a guy. He is a devout Jew most likely the descendant of one of those who, have return, who returned from the exile 400 years earlier. And he, like all of his countrymen, has been waiting and watching, hoping for the Messiah. Although there's something different about this guy, something special. He has been given a special promise, promise directly to him from the Holy Spirit that he will one day see the Messiah with his own eyes before he tastes death. I don't know exactly what that means because the text doesn't say, was it possibly revealed to him in a dream? Did maybe somebody with the gift of prophecy came and spoke this word over him? I don't know. But I think of Simeon a little bit like I think about Noah. You have to know that there were people around at this time that would see this old man walking through the temple every day and be like, there he goes again. There's old Simeon. Yeah, did you hear he claimed that God told him that he's going to see the Messiah? in his lifetime. We've been waiting all this time and that's what he thinks. I like to think of him as maybe sort of this harmless old guy. He's always out there on the corner. Everybody knows him. He's a regular, but everybody kind of thinks maybe got a couple screws loose, but he doesn't care. He's been given a promise and who knows how long he's been carrying around this promise. Promise could be 30, 40 years, but it is his promise and he is not 
letting go of it. And then one day he walks into the temple. The text says in the spirit, like he has many, many times before. And then there he is. There he is. That's him. And I don't know how he knew, but he did know. And he walks over to the baby. He doesn't say, oh, what a cute baby. He doesn't say, is it okay if I hold your baby? He reached out with his old hands. And I have to tell you, I know we're not supposed to envision first century Jews as white people, but I always see my dad in this moment. My dad's an actor. He's 74. He's a tall, skinny man with these old wrinkly hands. And he reaches up. And you have to know that there was something in his face that told Mary, this is a safe person to hand my baby to. And he takes the baby in his arms looks down into its face, and he prays out loud where everybody can hear, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. What a beautiful prayer, right? It's so simple, just this expression of joy and rest. He's like, finally, Finally, I have seen with my own eyes what we've all been waiting for. You get the sense that bound up in this prayer is the weight of all those years of pain and longing. Bound up in the old man's wrinkled fingers is the sin of every Old Testament saint that was laid on the head of the slaughtered lamb. The failure of every judge, every king, every revolutionary that they hoped would bring deliverance but didn't. The words of every faithful prophet that fell on deaf ears. Every Jew who was born and died under the oppression of Alexander, Ptolemy, the Seleucids, and the Romans. Bound up in these old hands is every hint and shadow of the Messiah written on the faded scrolls of the patriarchs. And just when all hope seemed lost, here he is. It's like God is saying, see, I do keep my promises. As Peter would later write, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. He's like, I told you I would. If you would just hang on and wait in patient endurance, I would send him. And here he is, just like I said he would be. It's a fulfillment of this personal promise made to Simeon. But it's much more than that. It's the fulfillment of a cosmic promise made ever since the flaming sword blocked the way back to Eden. It's a promise made to every longing heart that has cried out for mercy, every heart that has looked up to heaven and said, is this all there is? Every heart that has looked within and said, there's something broken in me that I can't fix. Is there any hope out there for me? And here it is, curled up in the gentle, patient hands of the faithful old man. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. He is Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And brothers and sisters, this is a promise not just fulfilled to Simeon, but fulfilled to you. You were there in Adam when he and Eve were expelled from the garden. You heard the promise that one day a deliverer would come to break the curse of sin and open the way back to God. And here it is. Hope is born and a change is going to come. And how do Mary and Joseph respond? They marvel. Of course they do. What a sublime moment this must have been. They probably just stood there in stunned silence as the temple fell quiet and heads slowly began to turn towards this old man holding a baby. And I bet there were some people that were like, 
whatever. That's just old Simeon being crazy again. Why is he holding a baby? Everybody knows that's not how the Messiah is going to come. Remember Judas Maccabeus, all these other revolutionaries? That's what we're looking for. Forget it. And they went about their day. But maybe some stopped for a minute and wondered if maybe the old man that they had always ignored was actually right. And they fall silent and they move closer. And he has something more to say. But this time it's not a prayer. He leans in close. He looks directly into the expectant eyes of this teenage mother. I'm guessing his tone changes, maybe lowers a bit. And he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, this second statement has a very different timbre than the first, doesn't it? It's not a joyful prayer. It's a grave prophecy. You imagine that Mary's face, having just been marveling moments before, now turns grave. What do you mean? What do you mean appointed for a sign that is opposed? What do you mean a sword will pierce through my soul? Nobody said that. The angel said I'd found favor with God. He said I was favored and that the Lord was with me. Elizabeth said, blessed am I among women and blessed is the fruit of my womb. Nobody said anything about pain. Nobody said anything about swords and and opposition. What is this? What are you talking about? And Simeon doesn't give any more explanation. He doesn't reassure her. You almost imagine that he simply hands the baby back to Mary, turns and slowly walks out of the temple, fading into the crowd, ready now to die in peace. He's seen what he was promised to see. And Mary and Joseph are left holding their baby, standing in the temple to once again ponder all these things that have been said. So what is he talking about? What does it mean that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed? It means that a change is gonna come. And when it comes, nothing will ever be the same again. A change is gonna come and it's gonna turn everything upside down. This is what I see as the meaning of the rising and fall of many. It sounds on its face like a political statement, right? But to me, it's the lifting up of the lowly and the bringing down of the proud. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said, and it's about to upset the whole system. There's already a Judean king squirming on his throne and is about to lose his mind over the threat that this child poses. And that's only the beginning. This baby is going to change everything. He has come to say, you have heard that it was said this but I tell you, it's this way. He has come to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. James 4, 6 says, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In Matthew 21, 31, he tells the chief priests and elders that the tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before them. And in Acts 17, many years later, when Paul and Silas roll into Thessalonica and begin preaching the gospel, what do the Jewish leaders say in response to these words? These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's what Jesus came to do. A change is going to come. And it will be good and right and true, but like most change that brings about greater truth and justice, it will come by way of pain. We don't get a lot of explanation from Simeon's words, but we do see for the first time among all the announcements and joyful welcome and celebration around the Messiah's birth, a hint of the suffering that's going to come. 
He is the light of the world and the glory of Israel, but he is also a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men will hide their faces. But not only that, a sword will pierce Mary's soul also. This pain will come not only to Christ himself, but to those who love him most deeply. Remember, Jesus was a man with a real family, a real mother, real friends. And Mary, at this point, knows little of what's to come, probably doesn't really want to think about it that much, but we who have read the book know the story. And we know that 33 years later on Calvary's Hill, she will stand quietly by, possibly with the protective arm of John draped around her shoulder and watch through tears as the nails are driven and the spear is thrust into the side of the child that she once rocked to sleep. Simeon also tells her that her son is appointed for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Yes, Jesus is the deliverer. He is the light of revelation to all people. But when the light shines in the darkness, it exposes the truth and not everybody wants to be exposed. There is a famous scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia. You knew there would be one where the Pevensey children have recently entered Narnia. At this point, they have... No idea of who Aslan, the lion who represents God, is. They haven't heard his name. They haven't seen him. And they're having dinner at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver says, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And C.S. Lewis writes this, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling that you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Jesus forces a response. John 1 says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. But two chapters later, he writes this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus is the dividing line. He said himself in Matthew 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. How is this? I thought Jesus was the prince of peace. I thought the angels had just come to announce peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Peace and hope and love, silent night, away in the manger, deck them halls and all that stuff. What's this about Jesus bringing a sword? I don't want swords in my Christmas story. I don't want to hear about mother's hearts being pierced. But guess what? We are not done with the swords. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what Simeon is, Simeon is saying in verse 35, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Before this child, every person will be laid bare. 
and some will squirm and writhe and strike against him, feeling that mysterious terror like Edmund felt. And some, those who know their desperation, those with genuinely longing hearts like Simeon will run to him in joy and delight that their deliverer has finally come. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. In other words, blessed are those who, like Simeon, wait in desperate longing for the salvation of their souls because they know that they cannot save themselves. And just like the, the, the change that Sam Cooke foretold in 1963, the change that Jesus would bring would not be well received by all. Such changes never are. They rock the boat. They upset the status quo. Jesus is the joy of every longing heart, but not every heart is longing. To some, Jesus is a threat. The Pharisees, the self-righteous rule keepers of the day were comfortable before Jesus came. They had set themselves up in a position on top where they looked down on the real sinners who looked up on them in envy, wondering why they weren't as righteous. But John the Baptist would soon meet them by the River Jordan and put them on notice with these foreboding words, you brood of vipers, who warned you to free from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A change is going to come, said Simeon, said John, and it's not going to be comfortable for everyone. Paul will later quote Isaiah in Romans 9 when he says, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The word of the cross, the good news for which Simeon had been, re had been waiting all these years is foolishness to those, who are being, who, to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, to those who are waiting, it is the power of God unto salvation. This child came to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But he also came with a sword. He came to shine light on those who have walked in darkness, a glimmer of hope, a glow of comfort. But he also brings the light of revelation that exposes the darkest recesses of our heart. And he will ask each of us one question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Do you feel the sword piercing to the division of joints and marrow? Do you feel the glare of the light of Christ that shines on you, revealing every thought and intention of your heart? And what will you do with Jesus? Will you run for the shadows and try to keep hiding from the light, which will always expose you? Or will you try to keep the mask up, maintaining the status quo in which you're comfortable? Or will you allow yourself to fall headlong over the stumbling stone, realizing that the same rock that trips you up and makes you fall is the same solid rock on which you can firmly stand? The strong hand that presses you to the ground in repentance is also the gentle hand that raises you up in adoption as a son or a daughter. Do not hide. There is no use running. There is no use trying to hide behind a squeaky clean facade of good works that you spent your whole life building up. No use trying to act tough, 
pretend like you're not hurting, like you're not lonely, like you're not tired, when he knows you are. He says, I see you already and I love you. Yes, you, even you, even the ones that I called sons of snakes, the older brothers standing outside the tent pouting about why I didn't get my party. Zacchaeus hiding up in the tree, just hoping Jesus won't look up and notice him. He says, I'm talking to you and I'm ready for you when you're ready to come down and be honest. Only those who have truly suffered know the pain of deep longing like Simeon did. Blessed are those who wait upon the Lord. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for something? To desire it, to long for it, to yearn for it. Those who hunger will be filled. Those who mourn will be comforted and consoled. And at the end of the book in Revelation, who are the ones who conquer by the blood of the lamb? It is those who endure to the end who will be saved. Those who endure in faith and patient longing. So what do we do with the pain and the brokenness in the world in the meantime? How do we reconcile the joy of Christmas, the trees, the lights, the presents, all the hope that these things represent with images of killed children in Israel and Palestine? The fact that a change has come, yet restoration, full restoration, still seems far off. Do we try to block it out, pretend it's not happening? Are we thankful it's over there and not here? Do we insulate and protect ourselves in an attempt to eliminate as much suffering from our lives as possible? Or do we open our eyes to see it, feel it, and along with creation groan in eager longing for a better day, a final deliverance in which all things will be made new and every tear will be wiped away from every eye? This is what Christians do. We don't run from suffering. We don't cover our eyes and turn away because we know the ultimate battle has already been won. We don't collapse in despair and hopelessness. No, we like Simeon, wait with eager longing for the redemption of all things. We hold out hope when all hope seems lost. We work to bring light into darkness and we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you in hope of that day when you will restore all things. We groan along with the earth when we see the brokenness, but we thank you and praise you that you came all those many years ago as a baby, God incarnate, God with us here to rescue and to save us when we couldn't save ourselves. Lord, would you help us and keep us in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.